Thank you, Seth, for leading us in worship and song and preparing our hearts to continue to worship him at the preaching of his word. And this is what his word says from Mark 15, 21 through 32. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of God. You can be seated. And as you're being seated, would you bow with me? Father, your word is precious and holy, quite the gift to us, not only for the fact that we can read it, but the fact that you also give us the gift of faith to believe it and the ability to walk in it, Lord, to walk in obedience to it. That does not come from ourselves naturally. That comes from the moving of your Holy Spirit. So we pray that he would continue to do his job in our hearts and our lives, Lord, compelling, moving, drawing, equipping, encouraging, convicting, convincing. All these things, Lord, are needed by different ones of us today. So I pray, Lord, please be moving in our midst through the preaching of your word we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm very glad that all of you are here this morning. Let me welcome you again to worship with us at Christ Fellowship Church. Very thankful that you're here. I've titled the message this morning, Convergence at the Cross, Convergence at the Cross. And children, if you don't know what that big word convergence means, it just means when a lot of different people or, or things all come together in one place at the same time. That's what a, a convergence is, a coming together in one place at the same time. So there's a convergence in our text this morning. You probably already saw it. There's a convergence of certain people that become the focus in our text, but also there's a convergence of certain prophecies that become fulfilled in our text that you may not have picked up on as easily. So a convergence of people that become our focus and a convergence of prophecies that become fulfilled. Now, the people, let's talk about them for a second. The people are important. The people are important because of two reasons. First thing, the people were real people. These things really happened. These people were really there. They, they really saw those things and, and said those things. You better be really thankful that one of them was real that day. The man, Jesus Christ, they were all there converged around him. 
The God-man, Jesus Christ, was really crucified that day, and he really bore the wrath of sinful man upon himself that day. He was a real man. He was really there, just like the other people were real. Number two, people are important because, guess what? We find ourselves represented in one of them. From Simon of Cyrene, who was compelled by outside forces to to be there, to the criminals who were suffering a, a just fate, they were there, to the passers-by who were wagging their heads, to the religious elite who mocked Jesus, and the Romans who were, who were simply there punching the clock that day. They were just there because that was their job. But you're a lot more like one of these people this morning than you realize and it would be different for each one of us, and we'll talk more about that later. So the second thing is the prophecies are important to us, too. The prophecies that I told you are fulfilled that day, they are also important to us because, number one, they prove the validity of the Word of God. What do I mean? Through the Holy Spirit, the Lord foretold people and places and events, decades hundreds, sometimes even over a thousand years before they were fulfilled, before they happened. And this proves a lot of things, but it it, it proves that the Lord, number one, keeps his word. He says something, and then it happens. And it may take hundreds of years. Some of them took over a thousand, like I mentioned. He keeps his word. It also shows that he knows all things. He He has all knowledge. Because as you know, the Lord created time, which means he exists outside of time, but he also chooses to relate to us within time, though he's not bound by it. So he has all knowledge. He also has all authority over that time, and he has all authority over the affairs of man, which, combine all those together, goes to show us why we can trust his word is true, why it's valid, because of all those things that are true about God. Second thing, prophecies are important because they prove the deity of the Son of God. Number one, they prove the validity of the word of God, and they prove the deity of the Son of God. How so? Well, as Jesus fulfills these prophecies, it proves that he's the Messiah, And if he's the Messiah, then he's the Son of God. And if he's the Son of God, then he's equal with God. This is why the Jews wanted to stone him so many times because they, Jesus even said to them once, I've done many good works in your presence. For which one of these do you want to stone me? And they say, not for any good work do we want to stone you, but because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. They understood very clearly when he he said, when he claimed that he was the son of God, that he was claiming equality with God. And they said, oh no, no, we will not have any of that. Stone him. And of course, it wasn't his time, so he passed right through their midst. So in this convergence of both people and and fulfilled prophecies at the cross, we've got a rich feast of truth to look at this morning. And it's going to be good. So look at verse 21. Let's get started. It says, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. What was he doing? Was 
coming home from the country. He was just coming home from the field. And they compelled him to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. Luke says he uses a different word besides compelled. He uses the word seized. They seized him. So this would have been the Romans who were there doing their job. Jesus, more than likely, is suffering under this heavy load. Don't forget. Don't forget all that's happened to Jesus in the 24 hours prior to this. We've been going over it for over a month now. He's captured in the garden. He's taken to trial. While he's waiting for trial, they're making fun of him. They're blindfolding him and punching him and saying, Who'll hit you next? Prophesy! Then he's tried unjustly. He's taken before Pilate. Pilate says, I don't see any reason to condemn him. And the people are saying, oh, he's bad. Trust us. He's, he's really bad. Believe us. Pilate, seeking to appease the crowd, has him flogged, has him whipped, and then says, here's your king. They say, we want Barabbas instead. And then they yell out, crucify him, crucify him, take him away. And then we know that as they start to take him away, we saw last week, that the Romans, at least 200, begin to envelop him, come around him and beat him and spit on him and mock him and put a crown of thorns on him and hit him with a reed on his head, we're told, spit upon him. So he's gone through quite a lot at this point. No wonder he has the, doesn't have enough strength to bear the weight of the cross. And that's just the physical things that have happened. Remember what's going on behind the scenes? The Son of Man is bearing upon himself the wrath of God. And that can't be seen with human eyes. That day, he looked like every other criminal going to the cross. But there was something extremely unique and extremely devastating and extremely beautiful happening to the God-man. Devastating because it was the wrath of Almighty God for every single sin of every single person who would ever believe ever was being laid upon him. Believer in here, how many times have you lied, you think? I mean, how many times have you lied? 50? Maybe 100? Maybe 200, perhaps? How many times have you had a wicked thought? How many times have you been selfish? How many times have you... How many years did you walk in disbelief? Disbelief is a sin. All of those. And those are just yours. And you've been alive for how long? Just a few decades, perhaps. Some of you less. And that's just you. That's just you. Think of the thousands of years the earth has been around. Okay? All the sins of everyone who would ever believe on that man at that moment. No wonder he couldn't carry the cross on his own. So they compel Simon of Cyrene. Hey, you, you look big, you look strong, come here. Carry this. And you don't say no to a Roman. So he carries it. He's compelled. He's just coming in from work. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. 
Apparently this hill, this hill has the look of a skull. Does it, I have not been to Israel. Pam, Butch, does it still have that look? Okay. I know years of erosion can change things, so it still looks like a skull to this day. Jesus is now offered something that we're told he doesn't take. Look at verse 23. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Myrrh is this bitter herb. It is bitter. I've I've tasted it. And it was supposed to be mixed with this older wine, and this was supposed to be something like a sedative, something like a painkiller. And it says in our text that Jesus didn't take it. Now, there's a prophecy that this fulfills, though, and I'm going to show it to you, and then we'll talk about it, because it says he didn't take it here. So look at Psalm 69, 21. Here's the first of our fulfilled prophecies. I told you there's a convergence of people and a convergence of prophecies. Here's the first prophecy. They gave me poison for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And in case you're saying, but I, th- but I, thought, I, did. I thought I did drink it. Here it says he didn't drink it. Yes, he actually did end up drinking some. There were two different occasions. Uh, I say this is a fulfillment in this verse, even though the text says he didn't take it, because John, the, the book of John tells us that at one point he says, I'm thirsty, and then they give him sour wine to drink. Both are true because there was two, two incidents when he was offered this drink. Listen to what this gentleman named Robert Robinson said. I thought it was very good. The fact that these details are included in the Gospels of the New Testament is an internal evidence of authenticity, he says. These men did not understand at the time that they wrote this narrative that Jesus would be offered a drink that would ease his suffering on two occasions. The first... Jesus would refuse because he had not completed his sacrifice for our sins. The second, he would accept after our sins were paid for. On the second and later occurrence, when Jesus said from the cross, I thirst, he knew that, quote, all things were now accomplished. That's what it says in the book of John. Knowing that all things were now accomplished, he says, I thirst. It was at this point that he accepted the wine mixed with myrrh. So, there's no discrepancy. There's no discrepancy, because we say, well, here it says he didn't take it. And then in, in John, it, I see him drinking it. Which one is it? Well, it's both, because in Matthew and Mark, it says Jesus didn't take the sour wine, and it was because his sacrifice wasn't yet finished. Jesus hadn't yet fully borne all of the wrath of God upon himself. And so Jesus would not allow any numbing agent to dull his senses in any way. He had to fully, consciously experience that on purpose for you and me. He did not allow his senses to be dulled in any way while undergoing that trial. But once the wrath had been fully absorbed on our behalf, he proclaims, it's finished. And so then would accept the sour wine because he was thirsty. That's the first of the fulfilled prophecies from Psalm 69, 21. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And guys, that was a thousand years before this happened. Roughly a thousand years before this happened. Look at verse 24. And they crucified him. 
And his garments were divided among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This is from Psalm 22. Psalm 22. We actually saw already from, verses, from verse 16 last week, part of this was already fulfilled. When all the Romans were coming around Jesus to taunt him and beat him and spit on him was the fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 16. Look at it. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. That was the first part. And then we see more here where it says, and they crucified him. Look at the next part of verse 16. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. What does that mean? He's in such pain that every bone is aching. So he's saying, I can count them. You know, there's some parts of your body that you don't really think about very much until it starts hurting, right? You don't think about it much. And then it's in pain, and that's all you can think about. It's like, oh gosh, my ear hurts. Oh gosh, my knee hurts. Or whatever it might be, right? Your pinky toe. You don't think about that very often until you hit it on the edge of your bed, right? (laughs) When he says, I can count all my bones That's the kind of pain he's in. He's conscious of every bone aching and hurting while he's being crucified. And then, let's get to our text. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. How specific this is. This is extremely specific. David writing this roughly a thousand years before it happens, and you would think he was there writing a commentary for reporting what happened that day to Jesus Christ, roughly a thousand years before it happened. And he's even got details like people casting lots for his garment. Wow, just mind-blowing, the accuracy here. There's more. There was a convergence of Simon of Cyrene who was just forced to be there. But then there were also others there weren't there that deserved to be there that day. There were criminals there that day. They deserved punishment. Verse 27 of our text. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left, we're told. Did you know that even that fulfills a prophecy? Even that does too. Him being crucified with other people who were transgressors of the law. Which prophecy? Isaiah 53, 12. Look at Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified that day. And if you were just passing by looking... Just going to market, perhaps, you would say, oh, there's three bad guys getting what they deserve. Anyway, don't forget, we need unleavened bread for the meal tonight. Just passing by, you'd be like, well, there's three bad guys, obviously, getting what bad guys should get. He was numbered with transgressors as if he was one. That's how it looked to everybody just looking on with no outside revelation from Almighty God. With no outside revelation from Almighty God, you would look at that event that day and you'd be like, "Mm, Romans doing what Romans do. Let's move on. 
But with divine eyes, with divine truth, we know something very different. It was a righteous man being numbered with the unrighteous. He's being lumped in as though he is unrighteous. But it's the righteous one taking the punishment for the unrighteous. It's the sinless son of God taking the wrath for sinful man, you and I. And that's why I also said earlier that it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing that it would have been very ugly to behold. And some of you with weaker stomachs may have even thrown up at seeing it. We can look at it and also say that it's beautiful because it was the purchase of your forgiveness. It was someone who loves you so much taking what you should have gotten on your behalf. And that is so beautiful, isn't it? Those of you in here who are in the faith know that that event is priceless. And without it, you have nothing. You have nothing without the cross of Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, without that, how will you get to God? How will you be reconciled to him otherwise? How will your sins get forgiven otherwise? What are you going to do with your guilt and your sin otherwise? Without the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, what will you do with it, really? Good works? No, it cannot outweigh. Because just like if you stop at 100 stop signs, but you run one, and the cop pulls you over, and he says, you ran that stop sign back there. Yes, officer, however, hear me out, I stopped at the 100 before that. He would say, I don't really care, you broke the law. Well, I promise you, I will stop at the next 100, I don't really care, you broke the law. You're supposed to keep it. <laughs> you're not earning anything by keeping it. That's what you're supposed to do. But when you break it, there's consequences. So keeping our laws in the land don't make up for you breaking them, do they? No. Yeah, that's how we treat God's laws, right? That's how we think about God's laws. If I do enough good, then I'll outweigh the bad. Well, there's another problem you've got. You don't do very good at keeping them either. <laughs> and you've broken far more than you've kept. And so have I, lest our visitors think that I'm somehow making myself look righteous. Oh no. I'm one of the worst in the room before Jesus saved me. And that's the truth. For my clothing they cast lots, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. He was numbered with the transgressors. Let's look at Psalm, let's look at verse, rather. Uh, by the way, if you're reading the King James or the New King James this morning, you'll notice that you've actually got a verse 28, which says that, which fulfilled he was numbered with the transgressors. If you don't have a King James or a new King James, look at your Bible. You will notice you don't have a verse 28, do you? It goes 27, 29. And you say, uh-oh, the 
the uh, makers of my Bible apparently forgot how to count. Or uh, they left a verse out. It's not that this verse was left out. It's, it's that it probably was never there originally in the first place. The oldest, oldest, oldest copies of the book of Mark that we have found did not include verse 28. Uh, it just wasn't there. It was likely added later on by accident. Like, for example, I just told you, didn't I just tell you that verse uh, 27 is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12? I just told you that. And that's what verse 28 says. This was to fulfill this verse. And they quote Isaiah 53, 12. It's likely that somebody put that in the margin of an old manuscript, just like I told you, hey, this fulfills this. Somebody put, oh, this fulfills this. Well, then the next scribe, 100 or 200 years later, that had the job of copying that, couldn't go back to that other scribe and say, hey, wait a second, I see this note in the margin. Is that because it was supposed to be in there, or was that just a note that you just put there just for your own edification? He couldn't ask him. That's a 200-year-old manuscript. So what happened sometimes was the scribe would say, well, I'll play it safe. I'll include it. And so that's how sometimes we get variants. So it's not that that text is, is missing from our Bible. It's that it, it probably was never actually there. It didn't actually come from Mark's hand. That's the point I'm trying to make. So if you're wondering why your text goes from 27 to 29, that's why. That's why. But we know, we can be very assured, trust me, that what that the Bible that you have in your hand is extremely, extremely accurate and reliable. Someone said, it's not that we have less than 100% of what was originally there. We actually have more like 110%. We have some extra things that, that may not have actually been there. So it's not like we're missing anything. We get a little extra. <laughs> That's what he said. And he's right. So look at verse 29 now. And I just had to mention that because you might be thinking, hey, where's my verse 28? And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. This is a fulfillment of Psalm uh, 22, 7, and also 109, 25. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Also, Psalm 109, 25. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Now, it is a sort of a funny image for us to think about someone wagging their head. What does that mean? That's just the way they would say back then, somebody just standing there going, aha, look at you. They called that wagging the head. And that's exactly what was happening to Jesus, and it was prophesied over a thousand years before it would happen in Psalm 22 and Psalm 109. This is incredible. I know that you guys are like, okay, okay. That's, this is not just an information download. It might appear that way because I'm like, look at this verse, it fulfills this. Look at this verse, it fulfills this. And look at this verse, it fulfills this. Okay, thank you for the information download, Cohen. I'm trying to show you that these are very, very incredible things. The fact that Jesus is fulfilling all of these moment after moment after moment when they were written at different times, different ways, sometimes even by different authors. 700 years to 1,000 years before they happened. Isaiah was written roughly 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. The Psalms, a lot of them were written roughly 1,000 years before Jesus came on the scene. 
And the fact that Jesus fulfills all these prophecies, I've heard it explained this way. I've heard it explained this way. If you could fill up the state of Texas with silver dollars, a foot deep, I think it was a foot deep, I heard it said. If you could fill up the state of Texas with silver dollars, a foot deep, and then fly over the entire state of Texas in a helicopter with one silver dollar with an X on it and drop it, it lands in all those silver dollars. Then you get one person to go trudging through all those silver dollars, blindfolded, somewhere in Texas, and plunge his hand into the silver dollars and pull up the one with the X on it. Wow, The, the chances of Jesus fulfilling all of these you know, prophecies, that's the, that's the chances there. It's, it was, it's just unbelievable that he did this almost. It's almost unbelievable. It's like it would be so very impossible almost for anyone to just happen to fulfill every single one of these prophecies. Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies about Jesus Christ and he fulfilled every single one perfectly. That's why I'm trying to just labor this a little bit. There's this convergence of prophecies fulfilled at the cross that would be impossible for a normal person to do. That's just too coincidental. Too coincidental. And he did it. To the T. Every single one. Every single one. Let's keep going. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Save yourself, come down from the cross. And then verse 31, we have another group of people. The people, by the way, that were just passing by, these were just your average Jews that just didn't like Jesus, that had just heard about what he said, didn't believe in him, just heard a few things of what he said, because they wouldn't have cared about the temple otherwise. So these are just average Jews, by the way. Now, though, in verse 31, now we're told exactly who these people are. Chief priests and scribes mocking him to one another. So this isn't out loud like the other people were, wagging their heads. Now they're saying to one another, nudging each other, he saved others, which is interesting because they saw him do miracles, right? They saw him do miracles. So they're actually admitting He's, he's saved other people. He's rescued them from horrible physical fates. They acknowledge it, which is why this is so criminal. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, now this is, see, now they're calling him Messiah. They're mocking him. Oh, let the, let the Messiah, because that's what Christ means, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. I tell you right now, I tell you right now, had he floated down off that cross in a ball of light and landed right in front of them and said, ta-da, they still would not have believed. Why do I know that? Jesus told a parable once about uh, Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man goes to hell, we're told, goes to Hades. And while he's in Hades, he can look up and see Abraham and that poor beggar who was at his gates begging for crumbs all those years with Abraham. 
in glory. And he says, Father Abraham, please dip your finger and have Lazarus dip his finger in water and just put a drip of water on my tongue for I'm in torment in these flames. And he says, nope, nope, nope. There's this gulf between us that no one can pass. No one can go from you to me and no one can come from me to you. It's an impassable gulf. And then he says, well, okay, if I can't get help for me, oh, I've got brothers who are still alive. He says, okay, then. Well, then please have Lazarus go back and warn my brothers so that they don't come to this place of torment. Please warn my brothers. Basically, have, have Lazarus rise from the dead. He says, because if they see someone rise from the dead, they'll believe. And then, you know what Jesus said? It's remarkable in that parable. He said, if they don't believe Moses in the scriptures, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. If this in and of itself, isn't enough to convince you. Don't ask for a miracle. God will give you no such miracle. That's what Jesus taught. If they don't believe Moses in the scriptures, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. These men said, oh, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You've seen enough miracles from Jesus and you still looked right in his face and said, you have a demon in you. They're liars. They're liars. They're just evil men doing what evil men do. And such were some of you until God saved you, right? And such some of you might become if you don't repent and turn. And that's the truth as well. But we're not done, are we? Because there's a this verse where they say, save yourself. This is the fulfillment of another prophecy. But it's a prophecy from Jesus' own lips. This was not hundreds of years. Jesus said once to the crowd, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. This was the fulfillment of that. Heal yourself, save yourself, come down from the cross. Jesus said that in Luke 4, 23. He said to a group of people, a group of Jews once in a synagogue who were not believing in him, you'll quote this prophet to me one day, physician, heal yourself. And they fulfilled that one that day as well. Well, now we see not only are just random passers-by throwing insults at him, the religious elite aren't the only ones throwing insults at him. Even we see, we know it's just one actually, but we know it's one of the men being crucified with him. Because our text says, like we do, we do this all the time, Mark's using broad statements. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I just used a broad statement. Did you hear me use a broad statement? I said, we do this all the time. Did you hear me say that? No, we don't. Sometimes we sleep. Sometimes we eat. We don't do it all the time, do we? So let's not be too harsh on Mark here when he's using a broad, overarching statement. Oh, it says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. No, I'm Mark. It was just one. We know that from Luke. It was just one guy. We need to throw Mark out. It's not inspired text. Well, then you need to stop saying all the time, right? Don't do that, right? You shouldn't do that all the time, especially not the youth. Youth love these broad statements like, oh, this is the best movie ever. This is the best food 
ever. And then next week, this is the best movie ever. We do that all the time. One of the criminals, Luke 23, 39 through 43. Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were, ha- who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, and God bless this man. The other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This man on the cross, number one, believed fully that Jesus was the sinless son of God. He has done nothing wrong, he said. He has not sinned. He does not deserve this. And number two, did you catch this? Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He believed Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. How? Where did he get that information? Well, he must have heard it from some of Jesus' followers, and he believed it. Those belief was still in its baby stages, apparently, because he was still doing enough wrong. He was still thieving But that day when he knew he was faced with death, those beliefs that were infantile originally became very mature all of a sudden. And he said, no, this man's done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I know you're going to come. And I know you're the king. Because he says, your kingdom. He believed Jesus was sinless. He believed he was going to be raised from the dead, and he believed he was the king of Israel. That sign above Jesus' head, he said, that's true. That's the truth right there. And he believed it. And Jesus, gasping for breath, uses some of those breaths to assure this man, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't waste any words. Aren't you glad? Because who hasn't been encouraged by those words? I have. So one man, let's talk about this convergence. One man was compelled to be there, Simon of Cyrene. He was probably neutral. He was just trying to come home from work, and all of a sudden these Romans say, you, big guy, carry this. Yes, sir. And he's looking over at Jesus while he's carrying this massive cross, looking over at him, limping, bleeding, stumbling, thinking, I've heard about him, but I don't, I, don't, I don't know much. Who is he, even? I don't know. I'm just trying to get home from work. We have two criminals who deserve to be there. One, even in death, is saying, hey, loser, save yourself and us, big guy. And another says, you ought to fear God at this moment. You should fear God. We deserve this. He doesn't. So one man's compelled to be there. Two men were criminals who deserved to be there. Some were just passing by throwing insults. They're just going by. They don't really care to stop and observe. They just say, aha, you, you said you were going to tear the temple down. Huh, okay. 
Now do something, big guy. Ha. And others are nudging themselves saying, we got exactly what we wanted. This is exactly what we wanted. We hate his guts. Now, let's make fun of him some more. He he saved others. Why don't you come down and then we'll believe you. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. And some were simply just doing a job, punching the clock. The Romans were just there. They're just, they're, they're just trying to get their paycheck. They do what they're told. Oh, crucify him? Okay. Crucify him now? Okay. Whatever. I just, I'm just here to get paid and get some free clothes. Let's just cast lots for these clothes. Maybe I can sell those too. I'm just, I'm just getting paid. I don't care. Some weren't sure, like Simon of Cyrene. Some reviled and mocked him. Some hated him. Some could care less, like the Romans. But you know what? Some believed in him. Each one of you are represented in one of those people. Each one of you. Some of you are sitting here right now. Maybe because someone invited you. Maybe someone made you come. Maybe you're unsure about this Jesus character. Maybe you're like, I don't know. I was just compelled to be here for one reason or another. I, I don't know where I stand. Some of you are here, but you really just aren't very cool with Jesus. You're just like, yeah, I don't, I don't really care for him. Some of you in your hearts even doubt him to the point that you would mock him, mock his words. Oh, really? It says this? Oh, really? Oh, really? Maybe even some of you hate him. Like the chief priests. But some of you are here and you know what you deserve. Exactly what you deserve. Like the thief on the cross. He knew. He says, we're getting what we should you believe. You believe Jesus is the sinless son of God. You believe he was raised from the dead and he's coming back in his kingdom. Each one of you is represented by these people here. But guess what? Jesus was the center. Jesus was in the middle of them all. Jesus was that common denominator that they were all converged around that day. And whatever person best represents you today, you found yourself being connected in some way to the presence of Jesus Christ this morning, haven't you? Because you're here, and I'm preaching his word, and we're singing to him. And none of you will go away from this room neutral. None of you will go away from this room the same way you came in. You will either be further hardened in your disbelief, or you'll be further softened in your belief and great gratitude for the Son of God. And that's the truth. No one ever goes away from Jesus the same. And I pray, sinner, if you are broken for your sin, then believe. Become that thief on the cross. If you're a Simon of Cyrene and you're like, I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I just don't know. Okay, I get that. We've been there. But guess what? You can't stay neutral forever, can you? Paul Washer had a quote, and he said, God, with one hand, is 
beckoning the sinner to come. And with the other hand, he's holding back his wrath. And very soon, he will drop both of his hands. That's true. Right now, he's beckoning you. Come, come to me. I'll forgive your sins. My son has already paid for them. I'm holding back this wrath that's supposed to fall on you. Come, sinner, come. And then one day, he'll put them both down. And those who are in him will be safe. And those who haven't had their sins forgiven will get exactly what they deserve. And that deluge of his wrath will fall on you. Those of you who are in Christ, the deluge of God's wrath fell on him. Children, deluge means flood. This is a fancy word for flood. I pray that you're found in this text this morning, that you're found in Christ. Amen. Bow with me. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It's living, it's true, it's real. I pray, Lord, that our hearts have converged at the cross. I pray that all of us who are in the faith converged in worship and love and adoration and thanksgiving to Jesus Christ this morning for all that you've done for us. We know it's only because of you that we make it in to the kingdom through, through repentance and faith in what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.